Hello, you're listening to Connect, Collaborate, and Create with Lisa and Devo. Each week on our podcast, we will discuss and dissect ways we are attempting to live our best life through our business, our personal lives, and connections and relationships we forge that make us successful. So yesterday I went for a hike, and this is my story to kind of introduce this, this conversation piece. I was on a hike yesterday in the mountains with my, my two daughters, and there was a decent amount of people that were doing doing the hike where we were. And when we, at our first stop where we were, we stopped and we got out and pulled out our sandwiches and, and we were sitting and having a little picnic and we ended up striking up a conversation with a, a, a woman and her daughter who were also nearby. And we were the only people there in this entire space. And if you, if you haven't been there, um, it's Stone Mountain. It's where they filmed Last of the Mohicans and a whole bevy of other movies. It is something out of a different world. It's like you landed on the moon. It's this giant rock. I mean, when I say giant, I'm talking stories, blocks and blocks of rock in the middle of the forest. And it rises up, I don't know how many feet, 6,000 feet maybe. And you can literally just sit on it and just ponder life and wonder how in the hell this even exists in the first place. But anyway, so we're in this, and that's how the conversation got started. She said hello to us and our dogs were running around and she started having a conversation with me. And um, I asked her because I noticed that she had a mask, but she wasn't wearing her mask. And I asked her what her, what her thought process was on this and why she was up here and did, you know, because there were people around and we had to cross paths with a lot of other people as we were hiking to where we get to get to where we were going. And she said, Oh no, no. I said, so you're obviously not taking it very seriously. And I said, and she countered like immediately. And she said, no, no, no. I'm taking this very, very seriously. I'm actually quite scared and I'm doing everything I can to protect myself and my daughter. And she has a son and, and like, we're fully on board with the protocols around this. And, and it got me thinking, and I didn't say this to her. And I was like, if you're fully on board with this, why are you sitting like inches from me having a conversation with me? You don't have your mask on. And if you're fully on board with this, your logic is not, your actions is not mass, ma- matching up with what you just said to me. And that's what the first thing I thought in my head. And the more I started thinking about that conversation on the, that I was having with her around everything she believed with coronavirus, and I asked her specifically where she was getting some of her information. And of course, it was through the media, stuff she had read online, stuff she saw on Facebook posts, stuff that she had seen on Instagram and such, right? And it got me thinking as I was driving home for the two-hour drive home, there are so many freaking different perspectives right now, depending upon who you are, the context in which you've learned that perspective, the social media channels that you follow, the influencers that you read their news and you subscribe to, like we talked to in the beginning, that it's almost impossible to get a real story on what's happening and have a conversation with your neighbor across the street and they feel completely different. When we're in your neighborhood, you have a gathering of people that have been doing from the beginning of time. They sit in the street, they drink beer, they coalesce together. Nobody really seems to give it a second thought. But as soon as they go to Walmart or the grocery store, they're putting a mask on. And I'm like, what sense does that make? Because you, you, you can't have it both ways. You can't say you believe this, but then do that. And so it just got me thinking, like, there are so many things that this this social media is doing right now. And the first is it's literally offered so many different perspectives, depending upon what you read. And the second is it's really shaping our reaction to how we live our lives right now. And Absolutely. You, and you had an interesting take on it. And, and you were talking a little bit about, you know, for the good or for the bad. 
how people are responding right now is based upon what they're reading from the people they're following, right? Absolutely. And I think, I think as a whole, uh, us as the human race, we want to, we want to do good. We want to um, follow the things that are going to, you know, bring health and happiness and, and everything to people. But honestly, it's making me a little bit more neurotic than I normally am. So <laughs> this is a lot, but we were, we were out the other day and we were at a restaurant. The tables were so far apart, you know, like 20 feet away, there's another table and a, a nice group of older people came in and we're talking back and forth. And first of all, the atmosphere was just kind of strange because you're so far away in a restaurant, you know, glad that it's opened and trying to, you know, bring in business. But the nice lady saw us taking pictures and she wanted to take a picture of the two of us together. And fabulous right fabulous because you know i'm narcissistic and i want something to feed the gram but when she took my phone from me did you not have that feeling when she you're kind of like mm, i don't know if i want to give you my phone and and then i don't have you know i don't want to clean it off in front of you and like it has made us a little bit crazy hasn't it it's made us crazy 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 and so that's funny you said that because yesterday the woman and her daughter the daughter we, um, they asked if I could take a photo of them. So I took a series of photos. And so let me back up a, bit, a second. So the mother and the daughter have been going to this mountain since the day she was born, apparently. Like this is something that they do. And so the, the daughter had said she had been there hundreds and hundreds of times. And so anyway, this was kind of like a big deal for them. So she asked me if I would take a photograph of them to kind of commemorate, they, you know, coming back to their, to the mountain that got, the daughter just graduated and she was going on to bigger and better things. And she doesn't know when she's going to see her again, yada, yada. And so I took a photograph of them and, and the mom immediately said, stopped me from taking the photograph and said, hold on, let me clean the phone for you. So that, you know, and it was like, and the daughter was like rolling her eyes at the mom saying, mom, this is just bullshit. You don't need to do this. And the mom was like, they got in a little argument and, just, and they were going back and forth on the efficacy of really what's going on. And it just made me shake my head and think, even in that same household, there is a completely different perspective on what's going on. And the daughter obviously follows completely different news stream than the mom does. You and I follow different streams. We share some of the same stuff. But it made me think, like, this new age, this, this younger generation, these are the people who are going to shape what the world looks like tomorrow. And, and most of them, if you talk to my kids or you talk to anyone in high school and stuff, they have a completely different perspective than their parents have on this. And because for the first time, they have an unprecedented level of information at their fingertips, whether it's through TikTok, whether it's through Snapchat, whether it's through all the different social media channels that we as adults play on. And they have access to so much information that in some ways they're more informed than their parents are. But, but that information goes both ways, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Honestly, and and again, like I don't think in the near future I will be doing what I was doing before. I won't be chasing people down as being like, "Hey, can you take my picture? Can you take our picture?" Which you know, like you do, you don't do that anymore. But there's so many different points of view, and it's hard to know which point of view and what's socially acceptable because we do want to be socially. Um, doing the right thing. We just want to be doing the right thing for everyone. And we don't want to be judged. We don't want to be doing something that even though maybe it's not our belief, we still want to conform. Well, to some certain degree. Correct. Absolutely. I agree with that. And there's, there's things that you've sent me from different social media streams, Instagram, 
that you've sent me videos. And I'm just like, I don't even know if this is real. You're sending me this, like, where, where's the fact checking on this? This is just something that's going out there. That's, it seems a little curated. It seems a little frightening and it, it's causing hysteria. There's some things that are, are factually true. And there's some things that I don't know how they're generated, but how, how do you verify those facts? How do you verify the facts? How do you know? How do you know what the right thing is? You said, do the right thing. How do you know what the right thing is? Because there's so there's a proliferation of data coming at you from all different streams. And as we talked about earlier with Dan in, in the last podcast, even the governments who are supposed to be providing us the information to lead their citizenry through this, whatever this is called, pandemic, even the information you get from one government to the next is markedly different. Even here in the US, the information that one state has in terms of policy and protocol North Carolina and South Carolina, for example, your state is basically open. North Carolina, we're still on shutdown, mm -hmm. right? And so how do you sort through all the nonsense and the information? So at one time, in one sense, social media has been fantastic because it's given this, this massive amount of information at our fingertips, okay? But and at the same a sense of community as we're all like quarantined as well. Yeah, but the other, absolutely. And the other side of that, that you just kind of touched on is there's so much information, so much misinformation and disinformation that it can tend to invoke a lot of anxiety, right? Because a lot of the information that's coming out at us is fear-based, it's fear-driven, it's, it's designed to sell. And so the next piece I really wanted to kind of touch on with you is that we already know that there are algorithms around visibility of information pre-corona, right? Social mm -hmm. media is designed to get you to participate, to be involved, to basically be tied to your phone in one way or another, to get information, share information, et cetera. That's the whole point of social media. And you can use that, you can use that positively or you can use that negatively. But around trending as well if something is trending it's going to get much more visibility and so what information is trending right now stories that garner more eyeballs right and so even if you have a platform and you do you have a platform for positivity and inspiration and you you don't use it for fear you don't use it for mongering you don't use it for power or corruption you use it to inspire people you put pretty things out there nice aesthetics you have nice thought thought leadership that you talk about but your information has almost taken a back seat. And we, we have visibly seen this in our data. Your information, as has mine, has taken a back seat. Violent virus is in, it's, it's reflected in my engagement. And that's, it's, that's gone too far. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, yeah, but yeah, you jest, but you're not being narcissistic because your message and other people like you who are trying to use it in a positive capacity, their, their information is, is not being distributed as broadly. And Dan said the same thing. He's like, there's so many people that are putting out so much bullshit that my information, while it's thought provoking and it's insightful and it's inspiring, it's being pushed to the back burner by the social media outlets because it doesn't sell. It doesn't draw in viewers, right? And so I, there's ways to combat that, obviously. Um, but it's interesting the reach that social media has. And I'm interested to see how this plays itself out. And so I don't know if you have any predictions around it. But it, from my perspective, all I'm doing is I'm going to continue doing what I've been doing, which is trying to provide value 
to my viewers and to continue being inspiring around that. And I, I refuse to kind of step into that space of fear and, and anything else. Right. We have no solution to this problem right now, though, do we? <laughs> <laughs> just opening it up for conversation. Well, I don't know if there's a solution. I think there's a lot of different solutions. For me, I think it is continuing to do what you've always done, which is don't focus on trying to affect everyone. Focus on the people that are already following you for a reason and continue speaking and being original about your content and unique about your, your perspective on things. And don't put out bullshit that doesn't that you haven't vetted or validated. If, if there's no data around it. Don't just make up. Just don't make up data just to kind of draw in eyeballs. That would be my advice if, if anybody is listening. All right. Amen. All right. So the bottom line from that is humans take cues from other humans. We talked about that earlier in, in the conversation. And so um, I'm going to bring in Gabrielle because what she's doing. To, I'm sorry. We're going to have to start using selfie sticks more. Oh, you think they'll make a resurgence because of the six feet? Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to ask strangers to take our pictures. Wait, I'll, did, I'll you, just... <laughs> did you ever use a selfie stick? I will neither confirm or deny that. <laughs> I've, never owned, I've never owned one. Yes, my first trip traveling alone through Europe. Yes, this girl's going to take pictures. And then I realized there's certain people that you just ask to take pictures for you. Usually young people, usually someone that looks like Arelle because she would do a good job and she wouldn't just take one picture. She would take a series, never a guy, because they only take one picture and then they hand it back to you. And you got to do it from the different angles too. Like you got to get the lighting, you got to go up, down to the side, because you never really know whose side, like who's got, you know, right side, good side, left side, good side, and try it all out. Yeah. Yeah. I'll travel with you. <laughs> Right, right. I'm, Wait, I'm, so a, I'm you, a photo photo person when I travel or do things. So I drive my so sister you, crazy. So do you both, before you ask someone to take your photo pre-corona, do you do what I do and you just kind of study and assess everybody and make it uh, make an estimate on who actually might have yes. skills with the camera? Yeah. Yes. And and I'll I'll let people pass too. If I'm like, oh no, that person doesn't know what they're doing, I'll I'll let them pass. <laughs> and I'll I'll physically turn people down that are kind and want to take your photo. And, and for whatever reason, I'll make a judgment on them. Like, dude, you're not taking my photo. Like I can guarantee you. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't need a photo. <laughs> but I'll let, really? I'll let the guy standing right behind you take it because I see a camera. <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully when you're not looking. The, the woman in Florence, remember we're on that street in Florence? That just sounds good. Remember when we're on that street in Florence? Wait, are we allowed to talk about that trip now? Was that first trip or second Italy trip? That was the first trip. Okay, so but talk about it. Do you remember how many pictures she took of us in our in the, on the street? Yeah, up high, down low, wide. Oh yeah. yes. It was, yes, it was a full photo shoot. I felt like I should be throwing money at her. Like, thank you, thank you. Sorry, we digress. Yeah, but before we digress, there was that other woman that we were in at the the Marriott or the Westin when we were, and she was taking. She was like, I really wanted to get artistic with you guys, and I did all these like blurry photos, and then we're like. Like, oh my gosh, that's funny. No, I put some filters on it. <laughs> don't get artistic. Just take the photo. <laughs> I put together a quick collage for you. <laughs> so by way of introduction, after we have that digression of conversation, Gabrielle Gonzalez, thank you for joining us. Did you, Thanks you for really, having did, me. Did you get to pay attention to a lot of what Dan was saying early on? How'd that resonate with you? Yes. Yes. I tuned in at like at about 630 um, so I got to hear a lot of what he had to say. And I love, love, love what he's saying, especially about 
teaching kids young about some of these topics that are very much related to just overall well-being. I think that schools, especially when we're thinking about little kids, miss the buck on that. And we just skip right over this super important thing. So yeah, I love, love what he was talking about. So you are a mental health educator and yes. you have a unique take on that. You do workshops and you do educational forums around utilizing the creative aspect of who we are, whether it's painting, whether it's singing, whether it's music in general, whether it's getting down and dirty on the canvas. Tell me a little bit about that. And you're, you're in California, right? You're in Southern California. Yes. So it's a bit yeah. early for you right now. Our last two guests were, were Californians, weren't they? I oh, know we had Australia before you. Okay, cool. Um. <laughs> yeah, so that is what I do, um, mental health education. And the reason for that is because I think, well, previously I was doing direct clinical services, which is really spectacular. I think there's there's a ton of value in doing that direct clinical work with people. But what I noticed in that work, and especially working with um, well, gosh, really any anyone at any age was that if only these people had more information about what they were experiencing, they, they might not even need to be here. Like they're just lacking the knowledge about why they're being triggered and why they've developed a certain pattern of thinking. And so the reason why I'm really pursuing this this mental health education as opposed to providing mental health treatment is because I think there's so much preventative work that can be done that is more like that can target more people at a time and in the long run not have so many people who are suffering because I think when we lack that information we we grow into our teen years and then our early adulthood and we can kind of just go on with life, you know, surviving on a day to day basis, but not really thriving and understanding ourselves on a deeper level. And so I, and I don't think not everyone is down for mental health treatment. Not everyone is at all interested in going to a therapist or seeking professional help in that way. There's a lot of stigma. And so I think that providing the, the education allows for some of that destigmatization, but also allows for people to kind of make shifts earlier on so that they might not need to access that in-depth psychotherapy, which one participant had shared with me can feel kind of invasive. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to hear from someone because I've never heard a client tell me like, this is really invasive. But when I think about it, I'm like, yeah, actually, it, it can feel that way for for people. So, yeah. So and, and in terms of the art perspective, I'm, I'm realizing that talk therapy isn't always the way to get down to the nitty gritty of what's going on to the real root of what is triggering a lot of that uncomfortable emotion or suffering. And so art, whether it's music or painting or singing, um, well, I guess that falls under music, but any type of art form allows for that nonlinear processing so that a person can be with themselves, look inward as they're kind of engaging in whatever creative activity they're drawn to and start to deepen the, their understanding about their own life experience and 
their own freedom to make a change wherever they want to. Do you find that, sorry, and we'll, we'll get more into everything that you do, but just what yeah. you're saying, find that by doing it this way, that more of the boundaries are dropped? Yes. Yes. And I think that that can be tricky. I haven't come up against the trickiness yet. Um, but I've had to put a lot of thought into it because there has to be one firm, firm boundary that has to exist is that mental health education is not mental health treatment. So what a certain, what a therapist, certain responsibilities they would have, a mental health educator wouldn't have. They would be kind of referring out or they would have a plan set up with participants ahead of time so that participants are aware of that. Um, but other than that, like I have so much more freedom to share about my life, to share about my growth, my challenges. And there are certain things that I would never share with a client. Like I wouldn't start talking about my own personal health ailments with a client because it's kind of taking up their time in a sense. But when it's in the set in this workshop setting and it's a discussion, it's not, you know, I'm helping you. It's really we're helping and learning from each other, but in different ways. So I think it's really powerful because the, the the facilitator gets to share a lot more of who they are. So I, for me, it feels more authentic. Yeah, it sounds more freeing. Totally, which is why I like it so much better than providing direct services in the way I was. So on a previous conversation with Dan, we were talking about the sort of lack of education we touched on in the beginning from children and, and how they're being basically taught rote memory education in the public schools. Yeah. And so I find it interesting that through what you do, and I'm going to back up for a second, for years now, public school systems have been removing art, theater, all sorts of, all sorts of limbic system education from the curriculum mm. and going more to standardized testing. And so it's interesting because uh, I grew up in a school system where art was taught. You know, I learned, I did home ec, and those were like part of my core requirements. I had to learn how to cook. I had, right. to, learn, I had to learn how to sew. I took theater. I took theater mm -hmm. in high school. I ended up going on to college and, and being in full-scale theater productions. I paint today, not very well, but it's something that I do. And the funny thing is, yeah. is that, you know, by being artistic and by being music and using music music um, as a as a modicum for education, it stimulates imagination. It is yes. it stimulates problem solving capacity. It taps it. It builds confidence in children. It taps into a completely different side of the brain mm -hmm. and teaches us to use both sides of the brain as opposed to one. And so, I find it interesting that all of the things that Dan was saying in terms of suppressing of knowledge and suppressing of women's power. And, and we're still in that we were for the last 30 years or so modern curriculum has been going towards eliminating those limbic system based educational tools that would actually mm -hmm. make us more open and aware. And so you're mm -hmm. kind of going, you're making a drawback to that space in essence. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think I think what's missing is the understanding around how all of that is so integrated. So by removing art, music, home ec, these different creative opportunities, students are going to be further hindered by not having those things because they're more closed off. 
they are unable to take those opportunities that they would have in the past on a daily basis to process their experiences. So home ec, for example, is a really good way for a student to process their experience at home. Whether they're talking about it out loud with people doesn't necessarily matter for some it might but for others just being in a situation where they're able to explore what it is to cook for themselves or to sew creates this sense of independence and also just this opportunity to be with certain materials and think in creative ways about their own life and the people in their lives and so there's a lot more going on in a person's brain when they're engaging in an art form other than what they produce. And I think that's often what schools, and not just schools, but our societies are looking at. We're looking at what can we get humans to produce? What, how can we get them to be, you know, um, well, just productive members of society. And so when we think about art, well, that's not productive enough, or that's not enough of what we need without thinking about what and brain needs and that being priority because if that's a priority we all are going to function better and we're all going to be able to offer a lot more to ourselves and to other people so yeah i think it is so imperative it, it, i think it's it's going to be required that these things come back into the school but maybe with a different perspective and it not being just this isolated class but this class that is going to shift the way this person engages in the world, which is going to shift how they engage in all their other classes and with other people across the board. I love that. And I love, I love how you drew attention to, we are so conditioned to, to producing something tangible. And unless you yes. can see that, or I've accomplished check, check, check today. Um, and I've stalked your, your Instagram as well fantastic things that you're doing on it but you're obviously very artistic like you were singing and so what happens to people like myself that cannot sing or are uh how do i say maybe maybe closet singers and are afraid to bring that forward or don't think that they're they're really specifically artistic how do you make them feel comfortable so that they can explore this and flourish from it Yes, that is an amazing question, because in in my past, even if I'm skilled in this area or that area, I had this assumption that if I'm not a professional singer, I'm, I can't really identify as a singer. I have to be professional. I have to make money off of it. I have to put out records or whatever to call myself a singer. And so even though I would now see myself like, OK, I'm skilled at that or other people would say I am. It, it took me a lot of time to even identify as, OK, I get to call myself a singer because I make noises with my voice and I make it go up and down and it makes me feel a certain way when I do it. Um, and I think that what is most important when it comes to art is not exactly what it sounds like or what it looks like. Um, and this is where I think that spiritual piece comes into play. How do I see myself as a spiritual being in this world? And what does that mean for me and my experience with art? Because if I'm looking at it from that perspective, it's not at all about 
producing something that looks or sounds good for other people, but rather experiencing something that feels powerful for me and might feel powerful for somebody else. So what I teach people is that it is so not about what it looks like or even that you share it with anybody. It never has to go on your social media account, though it can, because that can be really empowering. Um, but it is really about knowing that just because we exist, just because we are in this human form right now, we are worthy of creating art. We don't have to be good at it, whatever that even means, because good is just a subjective judgment, really. There's probably other folks who think I'm a terrible singer. So it, it, it just really is dependent on the person. And so for that reason, I just don't think it's about the judgments we place on our art or really on anybody else's art. It's about the experience and what we can allow ourselves to recognize in ourselves as that experience plays out. So what emotions come up for me? What am I feeling in my body when I like hit these keys on the keyboard? Even if the, the, the keys don't make any sense or the, the, the note doesn't make sense. If I hit these and I do it over and over again and, and mindfully and I feel my fingers and I feel the vibrations from the, the keyboard, how does it make me feel? And where is it coming up in my body? And, and I think that is the power in utilizing art. It doesn't have to go anywhere. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be a show. It can just be like your own show for yourself. What I hear you saying is it doesn't have to be results-based like everything else is. Everything is, yes. everything is measured from standardized testing through, I mean, even when we're on social media, we're measuring our results. Is it being effective? Is it not being effective? And sometimes being able to step back and journal like for me, I use yeah. social media as a cathartic way for me to share some of my thoughts. And those thoughts originally come from journal entries that I make based mm -hmm. on what I read or something, a conversation mm -hmm. I had with somebody interesting. And so, you know, we, we talked about the woman up in the mountains and a whole that whole thing. And I started writing a whole thought piece on how we have this difference and these delineations of opinions around everything going on right now. And being able to use that in some sort of an inspirational format like journaling and getting that out there as a message for people is, is the true benefit of all that. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think what you're even saying there, you know, we we are sometimes our biggest stumbling block by judging what we're good yeah. at, what not good at. And when you said experience, that's that's what it's all about. And Diva, we've talked about this. Mm -hmm. Photography is fantastic, but what you deliver because there's so many people that are fantastic at what they do, great photographers, great chefs, all of that, but you deliver an experience. And, and once you have that experience, yeah. that ignites so many other things, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it, it allows for a person to start building on whatever they create. So if they start one day and, you know, they had a thought for a, a poem um, for some piece of writing. And then as they meditate on that, or as they kind of digest that further, maybe they take it to a drawing. Now I'm going to process it in this art form. And now maybe I'm going to put on a song and I'm going to move through, you know, 
allow myself to move that emotion through my body. So there's a lot of different ways of doing it where it, yeah, it absolutely doesn't have to be results-based, but just experience. Like when I, when I, <laughs> I bought this keyboard and I had no idea what I was doing. And my, my first thought was like, okay, I need to learn how to play the keyboard. So I was really threatened by it. Cause I start like looking up videos on how to play. And I'm like, oh my God, this looks so complicated. This is so boring. Like just learning, like doing this over and over. And finally I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm not going to learn the keyboard. I'm going to just experience the keyboard. I'm just going to start hitting different stuff, see what it sounds like, see what this, if I hit this one, like, oh, what feeling does that one give me? Or what feeling does this one give me? And that became a lot more fun and, and really kind of opened the door for me to, to go further with it. But I think looking at it as an experience rather than as something we need to learn, it, it's so much more fun and freeing. Want to connect with us more? Would you like to check out past episodes? You can do so by clicking on any of the links below. You can also find us on Instagram at Lisa Staff Photo and at Fusion Photog. They are also listed below. So in some of your language on, on your websites and on your social media, you talk a little bit about generational trauma and how that drives us to our, our beliefs about ourselves and our confidence and all those sorts of things. Did you have something traumatic that occurred to you in your childhood or leading up to where you are that made you have that shift, that paradigm shift in your, in your thought process? So I would have to say at this point, yeah, I didn't think I had any trauma in my life, but it was thanks to participating in my own individual therapy that I was able to start recognizing like, okay, that thing was traumatic. Um, but some of these traumatic things didn't happen until later in life. In childhood, there were certain stressors that came up. Um, and what happens when you're a kid is trauma is very much about perception because even if you weren't, let's say, directly threatened by something as a kid, if you're if you perceive that there's a direct threat or that your life is in danger and people aren't able to help you manage and cope with that, then that can feel traumatic. That can feel really scary. So when I was a kid, I experienced a lot of panic around death, the idea of death and um, yeah, related issues that came up when I was like 10, 11 years old, I think were traumatic for me. Um, but thinking back even further, like, I don't know everything that's happened in my mom and my dad's life, but would I assume that they've experienced trauma on some level? Yes, I would. Um, would I assume that my mom's mom or my dad's parents uh, experienced trauma? Absolutely, I would. So I think that the other issue is a lot of, um, like the generations before me didn't quite know what trauma was. It's kind of a newer understanding, I think now, that trauma is very widespread and it can look a lot of different ways. And what happens is whatever unresolved trauma a person is holding does get passed down just in the way that they raise their kids or just experience their relationships. And so whether any person explicitly knows what the trauma was, you know, is a little 
uncertain. We might not, but the body can, will hold onto whatever that is. So it can show up as anxiety, as depression, as kind of OCD tendencies, a lot of different symptoms, symptoms that can come up as a result of that. Um, so I would say yes. And also I think it dates back much farther. Um, and just if we think about our whole, our world as a whole, experiencing trauma and experiencing trauma over a long period of time and what that does to our societies and the way that our societies interact with one another, with one another. Um, I'm reading, a, we're all, I'm, I'm yeah. reading a book right now by Dr. Joe Dispenza and he actually talks about, I believe the term is epidemiology around how genetically this sort of disposition you're talking about, generational trauma, is genetically passed down to your children. So, um, and you can actually alter your cellular and your genetics around that. So yeah. you, can, you can you can change. Like people think that oh, I I, I was I I was born into a poor environment, and you know I didn't have any sort of opportunities, and so I'm just going to believe in that cycle year after year, and it becomes a self-deprecating right. self self-prophesying, self-prophesying um, way of living your life, but you can physically change that genetic structure. But he was, he, in one of the chapters he's talking about right now is that those genes that your parents, that trauma that your parents experienced and how they manifested it in terms of how they passed it on to you, it actually becomes part of your DNA. And you can alter that again and you can change that. But is, so is that what you're getting at in that particular piece? So I'm not expert in terms of how it is genetically passed on, but I understand that neurologically the brain is going to hold on to that information and it does send the body a message. So yeah, absolutely. I think that makes complete sense. And um, the brain, it's so incredibly powerful. It is picking up on so many subtle cues and messages from early on, from the time that a person is in the womb. And so even if a person, um, yeah, doesn't know explicitly what happened to them or what happened to the people in their, in their family, their body is going to hold on to that because the brain is developing from back to front. So the front part of the brain is what's responsible for memory, impulsive, impulsivity control, uh, rational thinking and all of that. The back of the brain is responsible for emotion and that fight, flight or freeze response. And so when trauma occurs or when those messages of trauma are kind of passed down generationally, the humans are working more in the back of their brain and the connections that allow for the front of the brain to kick in and say, okay, let's think rationally. This is what's really happening and seeing with clear eyes, a person's neural pathways are somewhat damaged and the connections don't occur as quickly. And so a person is going to act out of that emotion center and, you know, run, fight, freeze, or just act in irrational ways. And so when, when folks do that, I think it's important to have, when we observe it in other people, I think it's important to not take it personally and to understand that we are all these humans who have experienced on some level, major stress or trauma and the body is reacting. So that's something that I would, that's knowledge that I would want to share with anyone is that if this is all true, 
then we have to know that when other people act irrationally, that it might not be about us. It might have to do with us. Granted, we do have to take responsibility in some places, but it might not be fully about us. It might be about what they're holding in their body. I, I love what you're saying there because we've we've watched, gosh, was it that Gwyneth Paltrow show that they have on Netflix where they had an energy healer come in and they were talking about that trauma can be held in different parts of your body and the importance of, of you know, energy being released and carrying all of that. And I think it's hard to know, like it's hard to just know rationally where you're holding it in your body. I think that's the, that's the challenge when we try to just use language, just words speaking out loud to process and understand where we're holding that. So like one thing I did in, in my last workshop was we opened with this activity where I encourage participants to physically put their body into a shape or form that represented where they were at emotionally. So they had 30 seconds to a minute to just physically place their body in a form even their small facial muscles in order to sink into the emotion and raise their awareness about what's happening in the body. Because when we just try to understand it from the rational mind, we might not because there's stuff going on so much deeper. Give me an example of using you as an, as the, what, like, what emotional shape are you in right now? What, what, what would that look like to us? What would it look like? Um, this is not a hot seat question. Right? I'm all, okay, I think I'd probably be like. And what does that translate into in your head? What is that? So for me, I'm, I'm realizing that I'm feeling like my heart is really open. I'm making a face like this because I kind of feel like a badass for like sharing my stuff right now. Um, and my hands are open because I'm, I'm, well, actually, see, that's what I just realized. My hands are open and that's probably because I'm realizing like, oh yes, my hands are normal. When I'm anxious, my palms get really sweaty. And so I try to like, I'll hide them or I'll rub them, but my palms are really open. And I, that's cause I'm kind of just in the groove. I'm just, I'm feeling calm right now. So yeah, I'm I, powerful. I'm feeling kind of powerful, open um proud badass yeah but that wouldn't be the form if you had asked me at the beginning or like 10 minutes before we started that wouldn't have been the form i would have been in i would have been at more closed off kind of nervous um yeah it would have been it would have been a different form entirely so when you're in these workshops and you ask your clients to go into these shape-shifting do they then do the verbal acknowledgement of what that shape shifting represents like you just did so what we did was we got into a shape and then after that i asked them to add peace so wherever they're at emotionally to shift just ever so slightly to add a sense of peace so even if the position represented peace in some way you were feeling content or joyous or whatever add just a little bit more if your position was representing something along the lines of you know anxious or sad or overwhelmed if you were to add a little bit of peace how would your body shift what would that look like and then so taking another 30 seconds to a minute to add and hold that 
right, so that didn't really I answer the question. So I'm gonna I'm gonna make you be shapeshift again for me. So I'm gonna play. Okay. I'm gonna play devil's advocate for a second. So you're a therapist, okay. and I'm coming to see you because my shapeshifting is completely wonky right now, and I'm I'm holding in stress, and I have generational trauma that's manifesting itself in the form of anxiety or whatever it might be. So my shape, this theoretically, my shape is like this. Mm -hmm. Would it make more sense for me to share what's going on verbally to you, what that shape looks like, and then for you to provide therapeutic reasons and how I could shift that using art music? Is that part of what you do? So yeah, yeah, that is part of what I do. So the the getting into that shape or form would be kind of the check-in. So helping the person get a little bit closer to where they're at. So the idea is challenging the person to utilize their own body in order to raise their own awareness. And then we would move into the psychotherapy lesson, or not psychotherapy lesson, but mental health related presentation that is based on a mental health theory typically um, and then we'll move into some artistic mental processing where they're able to use words or drawing or clay or whatever in order to process their reaction further and so they have every opportunity if they feel comfortable sharing verbally but i never require it because i don't think that it is required that someone tell me about their healing for them to heal if that helps them in their healing, yeah, like please share. But if it doesn't feel necessary or if a person just needs more time to kind of sit in the experience and then come back later and share, that is welcome. And I think that's that is the, the skill I bring into it that comes from my work with zero to five kids because I would never expect a two-year-old to answer a therapy question. I would never ask them how they're feeling about something. Rather, I would engage in play with them, allow them to demonstrate feeling with toys, and then just reflect it and name it for them. So it's a, it's a much more kind of like fluid and freeing way of processing, um, even with adults. It's, it's such a, a way to, to take that personal inventory which we don't generally do. Like we get busy with things and don't really react to like, how are we actually feeling? So that personal inventory in a very non-threatening way. Yeah, totally. And, and, and there's other ways of doing it because so say someone isn't that comfortable getting into their body like that. Some might not be, and that's okay. So what, what can be done instead is like a quick writing check-in. So one thing I've done is like, okay, um, what, how did I, okay, I think the first question was like, what am I feeling in my body? Emotionally, I feel, so we're just focusing on physical experience and emotional experience. And then what is one small thing I can do to shift or to feel a little more peace? And so one thing I've realized for myself is if I wake up overwhelmed, I can be real spacey and just, I just don't get things done or I get anxious or whatever. So just sitting down and writing like, okay, in my body, I feel greasy. Like my face feels greasy. <laughs> Emotionally, I feel overwhelmed. One small thing I can do to feel slightly more peace is go wash my face. Like it's that simple. So it's just creating these experiences or opportunities, whether it's through movement, whether it's through art or whether it's through writing to just check in with the self, take that moment 
because there's so many small things that can be done that just it just doesn't have to be that complex. But I think our minds, like we think it has to be that complex. And sometimes it is, but it doesn't always have to be. So in the terms of the, the, the and I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this terminology, but psychotherapies, there's several schools of thought around behaviorism, cognitive therapy, humanistic. There's, there, I think there's five of them total. I forget the last one. I think that's is it integrative medicine, integrative therapy. Do you, yeah. Uh -huh, there's where does, where does this, what is the genealogy of your form of therapy and where does it fall within those five? Is there crossover? Because it kind of seems like what you're doing could apply to all five of those different modalities. Mm -hmm. Is that? 100%. Yeah. So what 100%. is the, So Okay. That's fantastic. So what is the genealogy of yours? Where did that come from? And is this, and I actually studied psychology as one of the degrees I have, surprisingly, I'm not using it, but um, in that space, but what is the genealogy from it? And, and who are some of the who are some of the doctors or therapists or authors who are who are kind of driving this? Because it's not something that I was taught when I was in school. Yeah, it's not. It's crazy. It's not something anyone is taught. I was Googling mental health education in like K through 12 and it just like doesn't exist. I don't even understand. It's just not a thing, um, but it's going to be it's going to be a thing. So, um, yes, I teach all the schools of thought. And the reason is because there is so much crossover and because what resonates for one person might not resonate for another. So I, I can't just teach one thing when realistically, if I was providing psychotherapy, I would be using all of it for different clients. You know, I might use cognitive behavior therapy primarily with this client because they're into it. They have to have, to have their buy-in. But this other client just might not think that they're thinking irrationally, period. So I might have to take a more humanistic approach. And so really we're just talking about their perspective and their strengths and encouragement and doing all that kind of stuff. So it's really dependent on the person that I would be working with. So if I'm teaching the material, I'm gonna teach all of it. And I'm gonna make it clear that it's all right or it's all wrong but we all make our own meaning. And so that's kind of the through line in the workshops is this idea of meaning making. So you can take in all of this information and then you can decide what is most meaningful for you and why it's most meaningful. So I would say the theory that drives my life and my work the most is, um, is in the humanistic realm. So existential theory is my ish. Like that is, that's how I approach my life. And it is how I approach the participants that I work with and the way that I talk to them about their worth and about their freedom to take responsibility for how they make meaning in their own lives. So existential theory is all about embracing our mortality and knowing that we only have a limited time. And with that limited time, we are free to make meaning of our experiences, to make meaning of our existence. And that in fact, if we don't, we're going to perpetually suffer. So existential theory, and my, my favorite theorist is Viktor Frankl. This guy was so cool. I just have to tell a story. He provided psychotherapy in Holocaust camps, like as a prisoner, 
he was providing therapy for other prisoners to keep them from killing themselves by instilling hope and by helping them make meaning of their suffering. So he believes that there are three inevitable sufferings in life, and those are guilt, illness, and death. Every one of us are going to experience at some point in our life guilt, illness, and death. And unless we pull on our innate power and freedom to make meaning of that, we're just going to continue suffering. And so, yeah, he also believes that we we create meaning where we derive meaning out of life from the way that we love or have relationships, how we create or do a deed or how we experience our suffering. So, so that is like the number one thing that, and then experiential therapy, which was uh, developed by Fritz Perls and, um, and, and it's called gestalt therapy, which is the German word for shape or form, which is why I like to use a lot of that shape and form within our art and experiential activities, which are literally bringing emotion into the here and now. So we're not going to just talk about how you were feeling yesterday. I want you to show me on a piece of paper. I want you to show me with your body what that emotion looks like, because by bringing it into the here and now, we're able to make a shift. You can't change something from the past or the future because those times don't even exist. You have to change it now. So experiential and existential theories are my favorite, favorite, favorite. Mm. You obviously have a zest for all of them. Like you're <laughs> So Lisa and I have a conversation about a, a, a certain topic that's kind of related to what you just said around existentialism. And it's, I don't personally believe in a religious God and I'm going somewhere with this. I don't believe that there's a God. I think we're all individually a collective consciousness of gods in our own right. Okay, but what if we are wrong? And my question to you is, what if you found out tomorrow that there is in fact a central God and we'll just call him God for lack of anything else. Existentialism and what you do inherently does not does not believe that there is a god and so everything that you teach is about self-development and that we are all personally responsible for our own outcomes and all and that we mm -hmm. can we can cure ourselves and that sort of stuff let's pretend for a second that you found out that there is something bigger in that in the framework of a religious god how do you reframe mm -hmm. that for what you do i don't i don't know if i would um, I don't know if I would. I think that it's a tough question to answer because when we talk about a God, it's like, well, which God? Because I, it would be hard to know which way to change if I would change at all. Um, but I think I wouldn't. I think that either way, existentialism for me is about how I live fully and I think powerfully within this body in the time I have. So I know that I have a consciousness and 
I know that I have power over my mind and that I am able to just from my own experiences to shift how I think and feel. So for that very fact, I do believe that even if I were to find out like that, you know, there is this God and that uh, maybe the decisions I make aren't my own, I would still continue doing my best to make the decisions that I think are my own and live in, yeah, the most giving way I can and not just giving to others, but giving to myself because that's what I've decided is my meaning. And that is my purpose and why I live is to serve myself and serve others. So I would hope that God would like me. Well, you for me, really are devil's advocate there. Can we talk about that? We're going to talk about God or not. You are devil's advocate. I am. <laughs> well, the standard, so you and I, Lisa, you and I have had these conversations I mean, countless times. So it stands to reason for me, and we're not going to go into the religious conversation, which, however, I would like to. It stands to reason if there, if there was an all-powerful God, okay, let's just pretend for a second that there is one God that, not us, a God that a created us. It would stand to reason to me that that God would not be a conditional God, that that God would want us all to be the very best versions of ourselves. And he or she would not be, would not be governing with a fear-laden ideology. And they would want us to dance and they, he or she would want us to sing and he or she would want us to run in the rain and he or she yes. would want us to be working together collaboratively. It wouldn't be a fear-mongering society that says, if you don't follow me, you're burning in hell. That doesn't make any yeah. sense to me, and I've never understood. Mm -hmm. And so, so my mm -hmm. aversion to organized religion around that central demigod figure has always been the fact that if there really is a god, I don't think they would want us to be mean and evil and hurtful and, and right. judgmental of you because you're not in support of my belief. Does that make sense? So Absolutely. I like your response. 100 100, 100%. And that was one of the things that I experienced as a kid being very stressful was hearing from other kids that I was going to burn in hell if I didn't accept Jesus Christ into my heart. And that was how I learned about religion. And that was part of what triggered so much of my panic around death. And it took a long time into my adulthood to learn through, not through talking about it, but to learn through breathing through it that I don't have to be so scared and that that might not be true. So yeah, I could talk about that too. <laughs> mass is there. You know, you're not the only one that's experienced that. You're generally speaking to the masses. We we all partook of that sort of ideology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lisa has a fantastic story and I really want her to tell it someday and I'm, we're not gonna go into it, but Lisa has a fantastic story around that vein of what we're just talking about. And, you know, she's she's broken free from that. And, um, mm -hmm. but I, I, I'm bringing Lisa on as a guest soon and we're actually gonna dive into that. So, you know. Okay, love it. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna tune in for that, yes. So in, in terms of help with it before I go on to, to you know get me in a good place. We'll add some peace. <laughs> oh Amala, yeah, So in terms of what you're doing right now as a facilitator for this modality, 
are you receiving pushback from the general science, the general population of people who, who are, who, my experience with psychologists and psychotherapy is most of them, most of them subscribe to a specific school of thought and it's limited to five core central beliefs by and large. And they kind of stay in that space and anything that deviates from that is frowned upon. So, yes. so what you're doing is almost counterintuitive to a large majority of modalities that psychologists and psychotherapists are taught. Do you receive yeah. pushback from your colleagues in that space? So I haven't yet. I haven't. Um, I've been to a couple trainings, one in particular that I will never forget. And it was just like, this is how it's done. And if you don't do it this way, you are doing it wrong, period. And that was a structural family therapy training, which was really hard for me because I was working with certain families that I'm like, this is not going to work for this family. Um, but a structural family therapist would say, yes, it does. It works for every single family. And if you don't do it with that family, they're not going to get better. Um, so, yes, there are going to be people, I'm sure, that might be a little bit turned off by the idea, unfortunately. And the reason that I think people might be turned off by it is because I think it could eventually take work away from therapists or from psychiatrists, because if people learn early on that they can shift the way that they think. I had a participant who is in high school and I was telling her about the brain and she told me, <clears throat> I had no idea that the brain did different things. And I thought that's incredible to me that such a, like a topic that can be simplified hasn't been and hasn't been taught to young people. Um, so if people knew that they, they would have more power over themselves. And if they had more power over themselves, they wouldn't need as much psychiatric help potentially. So any reason I could see for pushing back on this idea, at this point, whatever reason I see is a little sketch. Um, so I would hope that other folks would know that this is what's best for humanity. Um, there might be other other aspects of it that I might receive pushback on in regards to how material is taught, what material is taught, and how to maintain that boundary between a mental health educator and a mental health therapist. Well, you know what I'm getting from all of this? That there should be a book in this near future with everything that you're doing. Maybe I have some writing to do. <laughs> Oh, I think so. Well, it'd be, it'd be interesting. I, yeah. like, I like where you're going with that with Lisa. It'd be interesting to get some information on your schools of thought that could be handed down to other people around this type of treatment type of therapy, as opposed to just keeping it isolated in one space. I think, I think like one thing I've shared with my participants is like, I have all this information and I just don't want to be a hoarder of it. Like, I don't want to hold all this information so that I'm like, you know, granted, as a therapist, we're we are collaborators, we're working in collaboration with a client. But at the same time, for me, it feels a little bit inauthentic to hold all of this knowledge and not like teach it and and have faith that, OK, if this person knew these things then maybe they'd be able to make a lot of shifts on their own. So there is still that power differentiation there within that therapist client relationship. So um, 
yeah, that just makes me think about teaching the information to people and what power that really holds. And I think what message it sends to people that you are capable and that you are worthy of making these changes and you can do it. So you're offering a lot of information on your website too, and you're offering workshops right now on all of this too, aren't you? I am. Yeah. So I'm preparing proposals because I want to get this. I want to kickstart this and be providing workshops full time for the next school year. So I'm creating a proposal to submit to the local school districts um, near me. And so right now what I'm doing is I'm offering them for free. So folks can email me. And right now I have a group going every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Pacific time, but I'm prepared to open up another slot. If enough folks are interested in participating, I'm ready to open up another one. The one I'm providing now is a 12 week series. So it feels like a long commitment, but it's, it's not something where people have to show up every week, but they can choose to show up every week. So how do they find out more information about that? This is where you plug it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you can go to my website. Um, if you visit, oh, oh, perfect. Okay, so you can visit my link tree, which is the link tree, l i n k t r dot e e forward slash mindful revamp. Um, and there you'll be able to access my website, which describes more. Um, and it also has my email. My email is uh, mindful revamp without the underscore, just mindfulrevamp at gmail.com. Um, folks can also DM me. I've been having, uh, most of my participants have just DM'd me through Instagram, which is at mindful underscore revamp. Perfect. Yeah. So I have one last question before Lisa takes us into the hot seat. And this information you've given us has been fantastic. So do you think, and you heard in a previous conversation with with Dan, we were talking about the lessons that we have to learn, that we have to go through trauma in order to plant a seed and grow mm. and become cultivated. And we, there's all sorts of mm. Do you think that this period of time with lockdown and quarantine and Corona and all that sort of stuff is going to give people like yourself, educators, an opportunity to present a different version to children than they've been, than we've been subscribing to for the last 30 years? So, for example, mm -hmm. what you're doing could theoretically become an online academy around educating children mm -hmm. in a completely different modality. Do you think that? Yeah. Do you think that what's going on, and the, and the fallout from that is a reshifting of education in of itself? Mm -hmm. Yes, I I 100% think that that is the case, and I think it's necessary that um, we all be looking at how things can shift and and how they should in fact shift and i don't like to say should but in in reasons why it would be helpful or why in fact it's imperative to make a shift right now because all of us even as adults with throughout our entire globe have experienced stress as a result of what's going on as a result of this pandemic and when we experience stress kids are picking up on all of those cues. And so this is an opportunity for all of us within this world as adults or as children to look at our emotions in a new way, look at them as information rather than as um, inconveniences. Our emotions are very valuable information. And if we are able to utilize creative experiences to dive in a little bit deeper, that's when 
our awareness peaks and we're able to make a change. We're able to decide, okay, this way isn't working for me or this doesn't feel good and I can change it. And that's what art allows for is that imagination and that opportunity to consider what else is possible. I love that. Thank you. Lee. So can you just give us quickly what your 22nd elevator pitch is if someone says, hey, what do you do? Because there's we've talked for an hour about what you do. How do you how do you condense that? Condense that for you. Um, so I am a workshop developer and facilitator, and I create arts and mental health workshops that utilize creative experiential opportunity and consistent mindfulness to improve overall well-being. You nice. practiced that. I did. <laughs> I wrote it down. I wrote it down, but I, I, I did write it down, but I did. I, I edited my Instagram because I'm like, OK, I need to put I need to fix this, this stuff up here at the beginning. So, yes, I, there's nothing wrong with that. I think being able to rehearse. No, it's fantastic because you have so many key words in there that say a lot in a very short amount. Yeah, and it gets to the heart of what you actually espouse, which is the self and existentialism and being able to talk about who you are and what you are. And as we talked when we first met, what's your superpower? What can you gift to the world? So being able to quickly spill that back out to somebody, it means yes. that you believe in what it is. So um, yes. I appreciate you taking the time to meet with us. It's been fantastic information. Uh, some of the stuff that you passed along can be helpful for me as a, as a a father of two young ladies and um, I'm, big, I'm a big believer in that sort of not necessarily I don't call it existentialism but tapping into that different aspect of ourselves that we may not use because we're just never taught to use it so thank you and one like quick little thing I, I would love to add is just that I had someone ask me if, if it's kid friendly and although a lot of the concepts I'm teaching in my current series are pretty advanced for kids it is kid friendly and then in fact families are invited to like bring their kids sit around the computer and like as the adult is learning they can kind of put themselves on mute and prompt the kids to do different related art activities so it can really be a family affair um which is cool that's really cool well there uh, that term kid friendly and that tin is it kid that term is it kid appropriate we, we've talked about this before i think we have a distorted perception of what our kids can actually absorb and 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 yes. understand like we don't think they understand but they actually understand way a lot more than we think they do they understand so much even as newborn yeah. like when a baby first comes out of the womb its ability to kind of process and absorb and react and see everything going on is exponentially greater than what we have always been taught literally i could talk for another hour on just infant mental health like totally totally true yeah it's, it's right. an adult perception of what they should be thinking, though. And that comes across, honestly, in restaurants that we go to that have kids meals, <laughs> that they think they only want fries and chicken nuggets, and that's yeah. it. Let's make their world smaller when the world is so big for them. Right. Yes, yeah, so true. That's a great so point. True. All right, Lisa's going to take you into the hot seat, so I expect your body shape-shifting to be a little bit curled up. <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> All right, Lisa, go ahead. I don't know if any of these are the same as Dan, so that I know. I, 
Yeah, Eva's so shaking his head. Because so you, asked, you asked about some people I don't know, so we'll see. Oh. Well, you don't get the cheat sheet on this one. These are all fresh and new. Okay. The largest weakness, how do you overcome? Ooh. Mm, looking at it, looking at it, not denying it. I like that. All right. Since we're talking about knowledge and education, are there going to be a, any books written about you and what you're teaching today? And if so, what will they be called? Ooh, well, yes. Um, actually, I'm writing one right now, and it's called Tales by an no, Existential Princess. No, books written about you. Second, autobiography. <laughs> oh, about me? Shoot. You've gone okay, and... yes, there will be a book. There's going to no, be a book I written about me. Yeah. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be called Mental Health. No, wait. It's going to be called uh, Mental Health Education Queen. <laughs> yeah, this is an autobiography. And there's going to be a little crown on it, too, with gems. <laughs> It's unfortunate. On the cover. It comes with the book and you can wear it as you're reading it. Exactly. We need to do your PR. <laughs> How have your strengths helped you to succeed? Oh, um, gosh. My strengths has helped me to succeed by reminding me that I, um, I always get back up remind my strengths remind me that I can keep going um, and prevents me from giving up. So you talked about your greatest weakness in the first question. How has that weakness, how could it be shifted to become a strength for you? To talk about it in my workshops, um, I think that one of my biggest weaknesses is is one of all of our biggest weaknesses, which is um, caving to the ego, just um, caving to this idea of like needing needing to be seen and heard in a certain way for you know to fill those ego um, egoistic tendencies. Um, so I think the best way that I can turn that into a strength is to really look at it and to really dive into why that comes up for me and talking about it, teaching about it and allowing people opportunity to explore how that comes up for themselves too. Mm -hmm. Do you not think that that is so much more powerful and so much more relatable when you're doing what you do? I'm sorry, can you say that one more time? I, I couldn't hear the beginning. That gives you the opportunity that strength more much more relatable in doing what you do yes yes because it's it's not about being perfect to provide the knowledge or the experience it's about being human and making the same mistakes and falling to the same you know egoistic or egotistic tendencies um yeah it's just a part of this human experience okay next question who would you rather spend the day with besides Devo and I Oprah Winfrey or Michelle Obama? Oh gosh, Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> she always wins. I'm curious why. Oh my gosh, I literally, I, I just answered that quickly and it's because this one time I saw on her Instagram story, her and her family having like lunch or brunch out in their backyard and they had this really long, pretty table and it just looked really nice. I don't have a really good reason. It was just a quick, answer <laughs> go back in time to give your parents one piece of advice what would you give them oh gosh um to say often to 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 
create silent space and to often say, I'd love to hear about how you're feeling. Mm. I really like that second part. Not ask me, how are you feeling? Not tell me, but say, I'd love to hear about how you're feeling so that I knew that I, I didn't have to talk about it, but that as soon as I was ready, I could. Mm. I like that. What actions in your life will you will have the longest reaching consequences? I'm sorry, the question, can you repeat that? What actions in your life will have the longest reaching consequences? Oh, what the way that I talk to myself, the way, I guess that's not really an action. No, it is. That is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way that I talk to myself in my head. Yes. Your self-talk. All right. Self-talk. All right. You can transplant yourself anywhere in the world right now, today. Where would you go? My grandma and grandpa's bedroom. They're still around? They are. They are. I haven't been able to visit them because of COVID-19. But if I could go anywhere right now, it would be laying between them and their bed. Oh. Where are they? They're really close. They're in Wilsamar, um, which is like only a 45-minute drive, probably less with no traffic right now. Yeah. All right, last question. Stay with my dad. Okay. What one journaling message will you use as a time capsule for reading 10 years from now? Oh, um, it is that you are worthy of healing. Mm. Wow. You've given us a lot to think about today. It's been a big day already. <laughs> right yeah I'm really glad you guys thank you for having me here this was really fun it was really cool to talk about all this stuff and you guys asked really neat questions too thank you Gabrielle I really appreciate you as well that that um both the conversations we had today were were really profound a lot of things I've written I've been writing as I've been going different things that I heard you say that would prompt different stuff and there's so many different conversations I can tell because when you're off to the side I know that you're yeah, we'll, we'll hear you say something and it'll prompt something, and then Lisa will say something that'll prompt something else. And so, anyhow, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. I've enjoyed getting to know you over the last couple of weeks. I'm excited that you do the silent minute with us now. That's fantastic. I know, me too. So excited. My daughter, my daughter confided in me, and I won't say this because there's other people that do silent minutes that she loves your voice the best. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's sweet. Oh. Cool. So, thank you for your time. We'll Lisa. keep using thank that same for, voice then. <laughs> thank you, Devo. Thank you, Lisa. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Have enjoy your day. Thank you for listening to Connect, Collaborate, and Create. We hope you enjoyed the show. If there's a topic you would like to discuss, want to be our guest, or have any helpful comments, feel free to drop us a line below. We would love to hear from you. Thanks again. Have a fantastic day. Thank you.